kind of reminded me of where we were going in this series. I was talking to someone this week. It was someone from our neighborhood. I had I'd never had a really great conversation with him. We're going to call him Jim. I was out to return my trash cans on Friday, Friday uh, afternoon, and, and the guy across the street said, well, hey, Pastor. And I hadn't had a chance to talk to him yet, so I'm like, well, this is an invitation for me to, to head across the street and talk to this guy that I hadn't talked to before. I'd never had an in-depth conversation. And we went, and I stood by his mailbox as he was, he was getting his mail, and he was sharing a little bit about himself. I had said, hey, you know, I saw a moving truck there earlier. What was, what was that about? Uh, and he said, oh, we were helping our daughter move. And as he, as he started talking, he shared a little bit about his daughter and a little bit about where they went to church, and then he started talking about his daughter again and, and how his adult daughter uh, had had always had time for other people. He said, she will take time from her day to go get groceries for people at the church that can't go and get groceries for themselves. We probably know people like that. People that always seem to have that time for someone else, that are willing to maybe give up of something that they would rather do to make sure that the people they know are, are cared about. It's like this devotion to God and this devotion towards people. As Jim continued to talk about his daughter, he talked about the devotion that she had for her husband and how, how he had been diagnosed with cancer and how she was there right by his side when he battled cancer, when he went through chemo. How she was there right by his side as as the cancer was gone, as she was there right by his side as they paid off all of the, the hospital bills that are associated with all of the treatment until he decided to leave her. And he was gone. She was there with him for all that time. And then he was gone. He just decided to leave and be with somebody else. Hearing stories like that from Jim, maybe you know some of those stories yourself. I know Emily and I, we have people that we graduated with college with, one that has been dealing with heart problems all her life from like high school age on, and just in the last couple weeks she was diagnosed with leukemia. It's like, Lord, what is going on? Or, or other friends that we've had that had, had kidney transplants in high school and has had three kidney transplants and has rejected all of them. It's those stories and interactions with people that have experienced those things that make you kind of wonder why. Why? Why does there have to be so much suffering? Why does there have to be so much suffering with people that are deeply devoted to God? You know, suffering can come in, in so many different ways. It can be mental suffering, mental anguish, suffering because of our own mind, where, where our mind somehow 
is telling us that we're not good enough over and over and over. Our mind causing us to be anxious or worried or or scared of, of every single thing that is around the corner or that we experience. It's our mind that it has those, you could call them soundtracks, those those background music that always over and over tells you and causes you to be anguished, to hurt. Suffering, it can, can happen to our bodies. I've heard some people even here say growing old isn't for sissies. Growing old, those times where, well, you don't quite heal as quick as you used to. Those times where it just seems to appear out of nowhere and joints begin to not work the way they did before and in the onset of, of consistent pain in your hip or your back It's like this drone that happens throughout all your life. As we continue our series, we're going to consider what it looks like. What's Jesus plus no suffering look like? Or maybe another way to put it is Jesus plus prosperity. There's a, a teaching that's fairly prevalent, and you could call it the health and wealth gospel. What happens if we we take away suffering from the world and and what if we give prosperity to everyone who believes in Jesus? We're going to be looking at 1 Timothy chapter 6. It'll be page 962 in those black Bibles. Uh, If you want to head there with me this morning, we're going to begin at verse 3. The end of verse 2 says this, these are the things that you are to teach and insist on. That's referring to the teaching that comes before. And then verse 3 begins this way, if anyone teaches otherwise and did not agree to the sound instruction of our Lord Jesus Christ and to godly teaching, they are conceited and understand nothing. They have an unhealthy interest in controversies and quarrels about words that result in envy and strife, malicious talk, evil suspicions, and constant friction between people of corrupt mind who have been robbed of the truth and who think that godliness is a means to financial gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation, a trap, and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. 
But you, man of God, flee from all this and pursue righteousness, goodness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of eternal life to which you were called when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. That's where we'll stop today. Paul is writing Timothy as the, the church is beginning to be formed. They're describing what it should be like for the church as they, they gather together. What type of community should this be? I think that's kind of hard for us to figure out and understand because the church I don't know about you, but the church has been here all my life. There's different iterations of churches, right? There's new church plants, but there's always, in my life, been churches. If you drive down Kalamazoo Avenue, you'll drive by several of them. You got Cornerstone way down there. I think there's one that's Trinity. There's, you know, there's, there's one, there's Kentwood Community Church right over there. And you go down, there's Encounter down that way. You keep going, there's Brookside and other churches in between. Not the way it was when Paul was writing this letter. There was basically the churches that he started. And maybe there was a few others that were, were popping up and they were trying to gain direction. One of the things Paul noticed, though, as as these church communities began to develop was that the community didn't always agree with each other all the time. I think this is something that we might, might be able to understand. The, the church didn't always agree on everything all the time, and, and there, were, there were disagreements and controversies, and they were trying to figure out what does this word mean, and there ended up starting to be these factions, these, these two opposite groups that believe perhaps different things. We probably have some understanding of that, of, of the factions that we've seen develop and the, the splits that we've seen in churches even within our own lifetime. It's hard, I think, for us not to imagine a life with differences of belief. I think it would be hard for us to imagine a world where everyone lived in unity together. And I think that's why Paul often prayed for unity. Because he didn't want to see a continued infighting among the people. And there's one other thing that he didn't want to see and that we find in verse 5. He didn't want to see people being robbed of the truth. And he didn't want to see people that saw godliness or the gospel as a way of financial gain. It seems that there's people among Timothy, that Timothy has seen and that Paul has seen, that, that begin to think that 
godliness and belief in Jesus was a way that they could use, something they could use to their own advantage, that, that they would somehow gain wealth from the gospel, that they could somehow gain wealth and, and, and really perhaps teach something falsely to people. Perhaps these are people with some intellectual understanding of, of God, an intellectual understanding of Scripture and the Holy Spirit, but no internal change to speak of. They see the, the words on the page in the understanding in their mind as a way to gain money. I think it's interesting Paul comes back to this because this is not the first time that he's, he's talked about uh, people who are interested in money and financial gain. If we head back a little ways into chapter 3, he starts talking about the, the leaders of the church and what those people are supposed to look like. And look at the last phrase, they're not to be a lover of money. That would be the elders. And the deacons were likewise that they should not pursue dishonest gain. Paul was concerned about the leadership of the church not being tied to a desire, an idol of money. And furthermore, that they would, would, would not use the gospel as a way to gain and to increase in that idol of money. Timothy is not the only book that speaks to this either. If we head to, to Titus, Titus talks about some people that must be silenced because they're disrupting whole households by teaching things they ought not to teach and that for the sake of dishonest gain teaching things, teaching perhaps what we would call heresy to people as a way of gaining money and increasing their popularity, perhaps. Next week, we're going to, uh, well, this is a little hint for where we're at next week. Next week, we're, we're going to talk about people who use the gospel as a way to gain power. Jesus plus power next week. So, so keep that in the back of your mind as well. People teaching for dishonest gain would gain power in some sense. But it would be using the gospel and in our belief in Christ in a way that it was never meant to be used. I think there's been times in our life, in our lifetime at least, or in your parents' lifetime, where where we hear of certain preachers preaching in a particular way. People preaching that health and wealth gospel. I was working with a couple of the boys over here. This is in my manuscript. So, uh, and, and we were talking one time about the gospel, and, and I asked them if they had ever heard of a guy named Benny Hinn. And they said, yeah, we actually watched some videos about this guy. He's one of the guys that often gets brought up regarding this, uh, this type of teaching. Since then, I, I've read some, some, 
some things where he actually repents of, of this teaching and that he saw that it was, it was the wrong way. But essentially, the health and wealth gospel, it kind of says, well, Bree, if you give me, if you give me any money, God is going to multiply that ten times. It's, it's saying that if, if you give of a certain thing that you're, uh, of your own money, of whatever it is, to a particular preacher, perhaps, because that's what they're teaching, then that, that will be returned to you tenfold, or you're going to receive these, these physical blessings within the world. It's a, a teaching that says God's grace is extended to you in the form of physical health and healing. That God's grace is extended to you in the form of physical comforts in life and prosperity. This is the type of thing that's taught like a contract. If you do this, then this will happen. Surely it will. If followers just trusted enough, if they believed enough in God, then you would receive that healing and you would, would receive that prosperity that you've been looking for because all the blessings of God will flow to you. You know, there's a part of me that thinks It would be nice to preach that all sickness and poverty would be gone today. It would be kind of wonderful, wouldn't, wouldn't it, if we could join together in some way, donate enough money, and then all of a sudden poverty and sickness is gone from everybody in our congregation. People using the gospel for gain. What you find with a lot of times the, the pastors and the teachers that are preaching this particular type of thing is you notice they're wearing expensive shoes and suits and all these, these uh, things that they have for they have gained prosperity. But prosperity for what? Prosperity killing the gospel. Prosperity by, by taking people's beliefs and, and taking them off the rails of, of what God is actually trying to do. There's some things that sound really good because we know that in Genesis, God created the world good. God didn't create the world right away from the get-go with people suffering left and right. No, he created the world good in a good place, in a, in a good garden that people would live, in a place where they wouldn't have to, to toil as they worked because there, there wasn't going to be these weeds that constantly popped up among, among the garden. And there's, there's part of us that knows that, that in the future there is is a one day where everything will be restored, where everything will come and it will become new again. 
where people will, will get new bodies that won't have the aches and pains that they had before, that, that bodies will be uh, built in a way where, where cancer and deformities won't be able to form. And, and maybe there's part of us that would love for that to happen today. The problem with the prosperity gospel is it generally preys on the people who are holding on by their last thread or the last straw. You know, it's, it's not the people that are like, man, I just want to win the lottery or I wish a Nigerian prince would email me and tell me I could get $4 million. It's not the person that says, I want to open my, my mailbox next time I go get the mail and see Jim and see a pile of cash in there. No, those aren't the people that, that the prosperity gospel preys on. The prosperity gospel preys on people that, that are just hoping to have enough money to fix their car that broke down. Prosperity gospel preys on the people who are, are trying to work as hard as they can to make ends meet so they would have enough food for everybody in the family to eat. The prosperity gospel preys on people that are are desiring just to have a little bit of an emergency fund because they know it's going to be cold coming soon and, and they don't have enough money for heat as, it's, as it sits right now. People holding on by a thread. And it's to those people that this false teaching, these, these teachers who are using the gospel for gain, can cause the biggest damage. Holding out empty promises to people in need. But the truth is, the gospel is, is not about empty promises. The prosperity gospel that is used for gain is, is peddling empty promises that are not the truth of Scripture. The prosperity gospel gospel, it makes an idol out of wealth and an idol out of comfort, which is contrary to the message that Jesus gives us. This message that, that preachers peddle, it minimizes the suffering of Jesus, and it minimizes his call to our life that we would follow in his way. The way of suffering. Side note, the way of suffering, preaching the way of suffering is probably not the way of prosperity for these preachers, right? Part of it is because I don't think we love to suffer. I get a little kink in my back, and I'm like a baby. You know, I, I don't want to deal with that pain. And so, well, we got medication that can take care of that. But the way of suffering is what Jesus calls into. He calls us to it, right? He himself, he, he came to the world poor. He suffered. And he left the world poor. You could say... 
You could say it was Jesus who was a coinless king. He's the, the king of the world, the king of, of every known universe, the king of it all, and yet he was a penniless king. He could have came with power and majesty and might. He could have came born as a, a prince of a king and be treated to everything he needed in life, but that's, that's not how he came. When we think about, think about this, the true gospel, we see that, that Jesus asks things of his followers that cause them to experience some type of suffering. There's a rich young ruler that comes to meet Jesus, and, and he says, what must I do to gain eternal life? And Jesus says, well, do this and that and this. And he's like, I've done all that from birth. And then Jesus says the piece that would cut him to heart, the rich young ruler, go sell all your things and come back to me. And the next piece says, and he went away sad because he had a lot of stuff. He had a lot of wealth. Jesus had every opportunity to gain followers with, with wealth, and, and yet he would preach and teach in a way often, often uh, where the rich people do not come out well in the parables. The parable comes to mind where you have a, a rich man and a poor man, and, and the poor man wants to be cared for by the rich, and he doesn't, doesn't listen, doesn't care. And then it fast-forwards to later on in life where the rich man is in Sheol, and the poor man is in heaven. And the rich man just asks, would you please give me just a little bit of water, something to ease my suffering? It can't happen. Jesus, in his teaching and in the way that he lived, was not peddling empty promises. He was, was not saying, if you become a follower of me, all of a sudden all your problems are gone and you're going to have as much money as you can do anything with. It's not quite the way it went. Because I think Jesus wanted to understand that he is more important. That Jesus himself is more important than any suffering we might experience in life. That Jesus is more important than any benefit we would have from extra wealth in our life. We can see the, the ways that Jesus talks about Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you falsely and say all kinds of evil things against you because of me. Blessed are you. It doesn't really compute. Jesus, he says that we're going to be hated by everyone because of him. This doesn't sound like the way of prosperity and comfort, does it? 
He asks us to step out into something saying that he is more important than all the material wealth and all the comforts of this world. And, and what we find is pretty interesting when we, we look at Acts chapter 5. The apostles that were with Jesus, when they left the Sanhedrin, they rejoiced because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace in the name of the Lord. I, I don't know if I've ever thought of it that way. I surely probably haven't rejoiced when I've experienced difficulty and suffering. Oftentimes when we rejoice, we rejoice at, at a promotion or we rejoice at the the raise that was just gotten, or the, the new house that was bought, or the car, or we rejoice at those things. I don't really know anyone, and I know I don't think my friends did, that rejoiced when she rejected the third kidney, or rejoiced when she went in for this routine appointment but came out finding out she had leukemia. We don't usually rejoice that we've been counted worthy of suffering for the name of Christ. But it's something that we're called to, even, even Paul. Paul was, he would call himself the chief persecutor of Jews. And he had an encounter with Jesus, and, and, and he went to uh, someplace blind, I can't think of where it was, and and then Jesus spoke to someone who was going to heal him. And this is what Jesus said to the person who was going to heal him. Because he said to Jesus, he's like, Jesus, don't you know who this guy was? I'm supposed to heal this guy who's, who's been a persecutor. And Jesus says this to him. He says, I'll show him how much he must suffer for my name. Suffering. Preaching suffering is not the way to gain from the gospel, I don't think. But it's something, something that all the people would know about. They would know about suffering living in the Roman Empire with the Praetorian Guard, which was, was vast. So many people. They would, they would know suffering when there would be just a little extra, perhaps, hush money they'd need to give to a guard so that they could do their business normally. Or maybe there would be this bullying that they would experience when it comes tax season, that if you just gave the guard a little bit of money, then, then you wouldn't have to incur that suffering and deal with that. And that was on top of the normal tax that they would pay. Bullying that would be fixed for an extra dollar or two. Throughout history, we could, we could read over and over and over again about how Christians had to suffer for the sake of the gospel. The prosperity gospel desires glory for ourselves, where the true gospel gives glory to God. The true gospel is that we have not been promised a certain amount of glory or comfort or wealth in this life. 
but that, that, that we have been called children and that we are heirs to a promise, Romans 8 says. If we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we share in his glory, the, the glory that perhaps is sought by these teachers, these false teachers peddling false promises, is, is not something that we are to have because our glory isn't going to come here in today. It's not going to come tomorrow. It's not going to come through wealth or it's not going to come through good health. Instead, it's going to be coming through our sharing in the sufferings with Christ that he would one day raise us and glorify us with new bodies. True gospel is never an easy message. But it's a message that says the effect of God's grace is not evidenced in comfort or prosperity but through participation in his suffering. How do we go about living? How do, we, how do we go about then living, experiencing this suffering? Well, it's an opportunity for us to do as the apostles. To recognize that that suffering is, is a part of the journey that the Lord is is calling us on today. It's part of that journey where in some way, and I don't understand it, we are counted worthy to suffer for Christ's name. That, that we are counted worthy, that our, that our walk with him perhaps is, is so good and so great that that. Maybe the devil who comes to steal and destroy has taken notice and has you in his crosshairs, you could say. To be counted worthy that, that the adversary of Jesus himself would take note and want to make your life difficult. But then we hang on to that promise throughout that suffering that, that because we have shared in Christ's suffering, that one day we too will share in his glory. Let us pray. Father, we thank you. Thank you that the evidence of your grace is, is not comfort in life. I thank you that the Evidence of your grace is, is not based on the monetary value of our assets, the size of our, our bank account, but instead, by our willingness to trust in you, to follow you, to sacrifice of ourselves and in times of discomfort, just as you did. To take each one of those moments as a, a further step of being refined by you until we reach that one day where you will have completely refined us and will be giving us a new imperishable body 
and giving us your glory, that we would share in the same glory that you have. Lord, give us strength each day. For it is your power that is exalted when we are weak. So cause your power to rest deeply in us that we may make it through those troubled times of suffering. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.